Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 91 of the podcast, the topic is two author podcasters discuss tech. Our guest is Peter High, president of Metis Strategy, host of Technovation podcast and 3X author. In this conversation, we talk about how Peter High came to host the Technovation podcast and get into enterprise IT. We discuss how Trondenheim came to host the Futurized podcast. And we discuss the new book by Peter High called Getting to Nimble, a framework and best practices the companies can use to transform their people, practices, processes, technologies, ecosystems, and strategies for the digital era. We also discuss a new book by Tronda and Heim called Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, which contains case studies of how to apply the forces of disruption framework and its components, tech, regulation, business models, and social dynamics. Peter shares his secrets of podcasting. A podcast is an album. The greatest hits get pulled through columns, books, speeches, and combos and how to innovate fast as a large company. And finally, we discuss the future of enterprise and IT. Peter, how are you? I'm well, Trond, how are you? I am doing great. So Peter, it's a great pleasure to have you on. You are obviously uh, super experienced at these things. You know, you ran a po podcast before I was born, I was gonna say, not quite, but it's close. And, and you do a lot of advising of, of uh, Fortune 500 executives, especially on the CIO side. So I'm very happy to have you on the show. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much for including me. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Right. Um, so you run Technovation uh, Podcast, and you've done that, I think, for 12 years. That is an enormous amount of years Indeed. for a podcast. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that. Happy to, yeah. Thank you for your interest, Peter, John. So, so you're right. I'm we getting were pretty early in the yeah. podcast game. I benefited because a dear friend of mine. Um, was good friends with the founders of Twitter, which you may know originally started as a podcast company. And so on a weekend trip with them, uh, this would have been in probably early 08, um, I, I learned about podcasting for the first time. I had never heard of it. This is still the relatively early ages of, of podcasting. And as I delve more deeply into it following that weekend with my friend, um, I discovered that it was a medium that was even then, even more so now, was relative, relatively easy and cheap uh, to take advantage of. And uh, there was a confluence of a couple of factors that made it particularly ideal for me. I had just signed my, in 08, I would, would go on after that conversation with my friend to sign a book contract for my first book, a book called World Class IT. And you, of course, are a, a, a fellow author, a prolific one at that with uh, your, your productivity of multiple books per year. Um, and as I was reaching out to and speaking with members of my network 
to, to draw out stories that I would use in the book, it dawned on me this was actually the perfect opportunity to leverage those conversations, of course, with everyone's blessing, uh, to double dip a little bit, to record the conversations, put those out there into the world, and then to take some of the most salient points from those conversations and leverage them in my books. And so that began in November of uh, 2012. And now, I guess, nearly 12 and a half years later, uh, it continues. And uh, as of now, I think we're 500, we're approaching our 550th broadcast of, of the Technovation podcast. Well, there's lots of things to pick up here, but one of the things that you, you said, you called a podcast a bit of an album, so of, <laughs> of greatest hits and, and the books, different albums, like it, it, you use that, that uh, metaphor. I like that a lot. So you pull in different type of content and you're able to, to really learn uh, a lot from these interviews. And I have to say in the short time that I have done podcasting, which now is uh, you know coming up on like nine, 10 months, there's an enormous amount of stuff to learn. And I'm embarrassed that as a researcher, I wasn't really recording all of my conversations. I mean, forget even the public, right? That's a whole extra benefit. But just even just recording every time you have a conversation with someone interesting, the value of just rehearsing that, at least for someone like me with poor memory and recall, uh, the, the structured learning you can get just from your own conversation. And I obviously learn more from the other person, but even just, uh, you know, rehashing what, what I was talking about, it, it becomes a narrative and you have 12 years of it. It's a very rich set of data. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I, I agree with you. One of the blessings of my life, and I'm sure you, you, you see this as well, Tron, given how many conversations you're having with people of interest, uh, is that I have reason to be in such regular conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. And it's the, the, the wonderful thing about having these outlets uh, for, for the content of those conversations, which certainly, of course, helps the yield on invitations for conversation, uh, means that um, I, I, can, I can reach out to a great number of people, and in many cases anyway, uh, gain an audience with them, and, and just as you say, learn from them, understand some of the, the stories, some of them very magical, uh, that represent their practices and what they do and the, in the various settings that they come from. And just as you say, yes, you, you, you recall a analogy we've described before I've described before, you know, that I, I think of the, you know, hundred or so 110, 115 or so interviews that I do just in my podcast and some additional ones for my writing for Forbes and other outlets as sort of a, a an album that I'm keeping. And then it's the, greatest hits from that that album that I can maybe put on a stage for a, for a conference that I'm curating or or certainly uh, for the, for the some of the really the best stories put them in book form and so it becomes a really wonderful way to have this running library of of content as well as an ongoing filtering process as to uh, what good looks like and what world class looks like in a variety of different topics so that's great. You know, one thing I wanted to get to is we have both of us written books uh, on uh, on the Kogan Page uh, publishing label that are coming out, or they they are out in Europe, but they they'll come out in the in the U.S. Uh, on the thirtieth. Your book, Getting to Nimble, we'll we'll talk about it, and my book, uh, uh, Future Tech, also coming soon. It strikes me that. You know, for your podcast, Technovation, a lot of the conversations there must be really resonating 
and and really communicating well with that book. So getting to nimble as we're getting into it, but you you have all these case studies of uh, I guess C level executives, the same audience that you're interviewing on the podcast, with uh, their learnings and and your sort of elaboration on how they are trying to get nimble. Uh, examples, I guess, of really best practices, but also struggles in in getting to nimble. I wanted maybe have you explain the whole framework around nimble. How did you come up with it, and what what do you how do you define being nimble in this business context? Yeah, thank you, and and congratulations to you, Tron. It's uh, it's nice that uh, we we're we're giving birth to this product at the same on this very same day, as it turns out. Um, yes, so the idea behind this really is that, especially for companies born before the digital age, though I I, I, I hasten to add that these ideas I think actually also apply very well to those born in the digital age, but especially those that are let's say you know t- 25, 30 years uh, or older, that there just tends to be um, legacy practices that need to be modernized. Practices related to people, process, technology, uh, broader ecosystems and their curation, as well as strategy and thinking further about the cascade from enterprise strategy to technology and digital strategy and ultimately data strategy, which is so much more important these days, obviously. And making sure that organizations are mindful of their levels of maturity relative to those five major topics. I, I propose seven, uh, 27 rather sub themes associated with, with those five that are important to measure, to, to gauge progress or lack thereof, and to uh, ensure that you are getting to a level of maturity appropriate relative to all of them in order to better compete uh, in this day and age, um, you know, the, the the I'm so pleased as someone who has worked with digital and technology executives for, across my entire career, now spanning about uh, 25 years or so, at the advances that technology have made to make these this these functional areas within major enterprises that much more influential. We see that, of course, accelerated as a result of the pandemic uh, and and the the new ways of doing work that have been thrust upon us in the past year. Uh, And frankly, those companies that have been most resilient are the ones who've been most nimble. And by that, I mean, they are the ones who, when opportunity presents themselves, they can pivot most readily to seize those opportunities. And just as issues arise, they can can stave those off and pivot away from them uh, most readily as well. And there are a lot of organizations, unfortunately, once, once great organizations, that have not gone through these practices in as measured a form as I suggest. And as a result of that, let me just give you a quick statistic. Um, if, if you your company was on the S&P 500 in the 1950s, the, the, your average tenure there, the, the average duration rather, that you would remain on it would be 61 years. Today, it's closer to 15. And it's a remarkable story, both of creative destruction as major companies uh, ebb and flow, but also of creative, uh, creative energy and innovation as new companies rise so dramatically in order to take the old stalwarts place, places. And as a result of that, if you are not able to change, to be nimble and have the practices associated with it, there are some pretty dramatic potential consequences. But, but I, I, I hasten to add, of course, the flip side of it is if you are oriented towards this, if you make change a core competence, in fact, um, as, as, as Ben Freed did, a story uh, told in my book, Ben Freed, the longtime CIO of Google, has an explanation of how as, as they become a behemoth, they've remained so nimble. 
uh, and his his answer to that question was by making change a core competence, that uh, if your organization doesn't have that in your DNA, then uh, then, then the, the, the consequences actually could be pretty pretty lethal. That's fantastic. So in both of our books, we present these frameworks and they're actually remarkably similar. I wanted to just reflect that. So, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about the forces of disruption. And even though I have called the book Future Tech, uh, of course, you know, several of those forces really aren't about technology, but they're about either how receptive we are to the technology or or how we are reacting and must react to it. So, you know, things like regulation, business models, which, you know, I believe in your framework is, would be kind of covered more under sort of strategy. And then in my framework, social dynamics. So the entire specter of sort of consumer issues, anything to do with the social reception of the product and also the preparation, how different societies are receiving technology differently. I wanted to maybe have you address some of those non-technology aspects that are really coming out in, in, I guess, in both of our books, because you speak of people and process, and then you you, you obviously have technology as a featured chapter and you come back to it, but then you speak about ecosystem, which is a word I also use, uh, you know, throughout in in, in several of, of the sections, but um, I, I wanted you to maybe give us a little bit of a flair uh, and a flavor of what each chapter is trying to do. So if you think about your people discussion, I know Capital One is an example, and they've done several remarkable things to try to really reach out to their customers and maybe also their employees in different ways. Yeah, indeed. Yes. And and you, you raise such an important point, Trond, in, in as much as uh, it's easy for us to think about the technology changes that are necessary in order to, to plan for the future. And they are profound and they must be uh, considered, measured, and actions must be taken, of course. But at the end of the day, you could have the best technology in the world. But if you have a, a corrosive culture, if you don't have the right people doing the right jobs, if you don't have a learning agility for your organization such that you, you, you're building a team that strives to have the, the, the skills of the future as opposed to the skills of the present to say nothing of the past, then uh, you know, you, the, the technology isn't, isn't worth much. And so absolutely, a uh, key ingredient, the, the essential foundational ingredient, in fact, is, is the people that you have, the team you have, and the, and the culture that you're building. Um, and you're right, Capital One is a, is a great example, um, uh, which I, I, the story of which I try to tell, at least in my book, of an organization that has made the change from a typical IT organization to uh, changing the, 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 the way in which the company thinks about itself now really as a technology company that happens to be in the financial services space. And Rob Alexander, the CIO for about a decade and a half now, uh, has been responsible in a great way of to, for, for that change and really building engineering heft uh, in, in, to, to the company. And you know, for so long, I've been doing a lot of um, speaking of late, comparing the the last economic crisis to this one. In the last economic crisis of 2008, uh, IT departments were decimated. And a lot of that still had to do with the residue of this reputation as being a cost center within the organization, typically uh, t- typically reporting to the CFOs of those those companies. And therefore, when, when times were, were bad, this is an area to go to first, perhaps, 
in order to simply slash the budgets. And, I, and of course, in many cases, those were people uh, who were let go in order to slash those budgets. And then amplifying a trend that had begun before that further towards outsourcing. And really kind of reorienting the way in which a lot of organizations thought about technology as primarily a buy as opposed to a build mentality. And I don't mean to cast aspersions towards the buying of technology. Of course, having part of the ecosystem point, in fact, is having a great set of strategic partners that you're engaging from a technology perspective. But if you don't have the, 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 um, the, the sort of skills internally to do some of the building as well, to develop the technology of the future, to innovate around technology, well, then your competition will be doing that uh, uh, much faster and better than you, you will do. So it does require having this engineering mindset and building the skills to make that a reality. And I'll just add one other anecdote that, that I think is among the things that makes Capital One special. They've really thought rethought the whole nature of how to recruit. Um, Rob tells this story about how they, they are loath to hire people at senior ranks because doing so is very expensive. Prying the best people loose can be very, you know, very difficult undertaking. Uh, and obviously, they come in without having grown within the culture of the organization. So he much prefers to find people junior and pull the best of them through rapidly through the organization up to leadership positions. And so they've developed this phenomenal intern program, uh, which is really the gold standard. It is often on vault.com listed as the best internship in the United States. And they take hundreds of, of uh, top qualified people whose other you know, jobs they're considering are Silicon Valley type roles and responsibilities. And in essence, they, they use the summer internship as the greatest uh, interview process of all of actually testing people in the, the, the actual work environment on real work for the company. And the, the people who are best at those jobs are given offers and apparently the yield on those are quite high and thus into the system they go with, again, the best of those people being provided great opportunities to rise quickly, should that be their ambition. And so you're right, Tron, to focus on the people aspects of this as really elemental, uh, because that's, that's truly my belief as well. But of course, there are other aspects that are related to people, but they, they bring in the different capabilities that people have. And I was, th I'm thinking of the way you describe process. So for me, <clears throat> you know, my framework is more from the perspective of an outside, uh, you know, read on what's happening, you know, in, in the world of technology, but it can be <clears throat> equally used, I think, to understand process inside of a company. And one of the things where I think there is a synergy in what we're talking about, you, you mentioned DevOps, this whole trend of, of uh, basically taking two professions, really, and two separate types of expertise, and then how smart companies, you know, over the last decade, really, have managed to fuse those two things together and see operations as not distinct from technology. That's at least how I read it as a headline, what DevOps is all about. And it's a new way both for engineers to think about how their skills integrate in the organization and indeed for the cadre, I guess, of operational officers at the C-level and, and other places to really more embrace that aspect of, and you were, you were on it, right? How, you, you have to grow some of that talent and some of those processes inside of your own organization. You can't just look outside and pick up trends and funny, you know, high-flying technologies and, you know, AI and whatever it, it is. Speak to me a little bit about how DevOps has changed 
large organizations when it comes to thinking about technology? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and I, I would I would include it as part of a broader trend of rendering the traditional silos of the organization more permeable. Uh, silos are not going to go away. It's not like there won't still be a finance department or a, you know, a, 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 an operations department or product and service areas of the company and, of course, an IT department. But uh, to a much greater extent, there's a recognition that value happens at the intersections of those traditional disciplines. And so the more you have reason to bring people together earlier, the better the results. I would say as a, as a predecessor to DevOps is really agile uh, development to a, great, to, to a large extent of including the intended audience of what you are developing as early as possible and, and including them for validation of progress or lack thereof, canceling things much more quickly when value isn't proven, you know, tailoring things and re, re, reshaping them um, as it is, and, and, and off you go. You're right. DevOps bringing together, as the as the portmanteau suggests, of development and operations to traditionally siloed parts of of the organization, and bringing them together so that you're removing that wall that you're kind of throwing things across uh, without necessarily having the the important context of what's being thrown 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 over the wall uh, to be operated, so to say. Um, this I think is an important aspect of building things better and then evolving them better to a greater extent. And so I would say that the the next phase of that, which we're also seeing uh, increasing, is the orientation to the change in orientation and operating model from project to product, and having a lot of technology and digital parts of organizations thinking much more of what they're building, and even thinking about the areas of their responsibility as products, products to be evolved, uh, products to innovate around, and and so on. And so there's a continuum of 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 topics that I know that we're both passionate about and both of us cover in our books that represent real opportunities for greater collaboration across the enterprise, certainly extending outside of the enterprise to broader ecosystems, and of course, ultimately to customers, the people who provide the revenue for any company, uh, in order to make sure that what's developed is as you know effective and adds the most value uh, possible. But uh, yeah, I think these are a combination of trends that are profound. Well, interestingly, when you speak of technology also in the chapter where I believe you, which is called technology, you speak of, uh, at one point, Comcast, but not from the perspective of their excellent technology, you know, in like a narrow sense, you speak about self-service. So it, it goes again, I think, to your point that when you see technology as product, the, it changes what you're creating as well. So here you're enabling a client product, not only that, you're enabling the clients to help themselves, which of course in the early days of IT was, I don't know, at least for me, it was slightly annoying. These banks were just outsourcing their services to me, right? So, you know, some of it is very, it's just clever. Other parts of it is actually liberating. You are creating something extra. You're giving me control back. You're give, giving me visibility of my, whatever it is, you know, finances or my, what services I actually have offered. Uh, have uh, you know uh, under offer? Tell me a little bit about how technology, you know, at the top level, which you've worked with so many C-level executives, who is involved these days in the technology conversation, and 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 you know, as it relates to clients, is uh, that's no longer just a conversation between product people, as you're saying. It's it's the CTO has to know something about the end client. Yeah. 
they can't just sit there and develop fancy. Exactly um, right. Exactly right. And and so what this means is the people who run technology do in fact have to have much better customer interactions. It's been interesting trying to see the proliferation of titles within the technology domain, chief information officer, chief technology officer, chief data officer, chief digital officer, chief transformation officer, chief innovation officer. I could go on. Um, and if you think about it, the purview of any one of those uh, that you and I could come up with a few bullet points as to what we would surmise would be under the envelope of any one of those titles. You know, why doesn't that roll up to, uh, as it does still in any organizations and very effectively in, in some anyway, uh, up to, to, to one set of responsibilities? The answer in some cases is they're not finding what they really want out of the executive who's, who has traditionally run technology such that they you know, that's going to be the, the keeping the lights on, the old way of doing things. Let's bring in some new blood, give him or her a new title and a new set of responsibilities and even a new team uh, to accomplish the, 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 the innovative and sexy stuff that we anticipate. Creating, obviously, uh, at the same time, uh, a Venn diagram with quite a bit of overlap and the introduction potentially in, in, in really negative circumstances of, of added politics and confusion uh, as these purviews need to be sorted out because certainly they are not mutually exclusive. And so yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I think the best organizations do have it roll up to a, to, to a single executive who, of course, does keep the lights on, so to say, but also is involved in the development of new products, uh, new services, new technologies, ultimately, to enhance customer experiences and, and, in fact, to get them to buy new things from the company. Uh, but that does require not only having a great sense of, of the capabilities of the organization, the processes across the organization, and how to use technology to, to optimize all of that, but to a much greater extent, customer touch points, which have not been the domain of, of the technology chiefs traditionally. And so the, the best ones are, in fact, those that are Mr. Ms. inside and outside to a much greater extent to have that, that uh, more comprehensive view and set of lenses as to where value can be created. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the book, as I have elsewhere, that traditionally uh, tech chiefs, CIOs, CTOs, CDOs, have uh, largely been focused on the bottom line aspect of the profit equation, cost, of, cost efficiencies, cost savings, and so on. They need, need now to be on both sides of the profit equation, thinking much to greater extent about the revenue implications of the things that they and their teams might be doing and advancing the metrics that the CEO and the board are most interested in, not just you know, a, a, a subset of those as had traditionally been the, been the case. So you're right. It's a conversation that, of course, first and foremost, is likely guided, at least in an organization that isn't itself a technology organization. It's a slightly different conversation, obviously, if, uh, if we're talking about a, you know, a tech company uh, at its heart. But in an organization where the preponderance of tech talent is in the IT, it's that team and, and its chief who are going to be the leaders of that conversation. But, you know, perhaps beginning with the consumerization of technology, uh, that the smartphone revolution and, and the iPhone especially ushered in for us all. Now, all of us are technologists to some, some degree, even if we don't have computer science or engineering degrees. We, we appreciate the profound impact that it has to a degree that executives in the past would not have. And as a result, the best technology executives are using that as an invitation to convey the art of the possible and start a series of conversations in ways that they wouldn't have been invited to in the past, quite frankly. And this is pulled all the way up to the board of the organization, Tron, as the best of these executives are themselves populating boards and hopefully in so doing at those very companies, engaging the technology chiefs themselves in, the, in those companies in some different ways, both for reasons of, of defense from a cybersecurity perspective, perhaps as the most prominent example of that, 
but also with, and I'm talking about the board level, also very prominently for offensive reasons as well. How best to use data, for example, to uh, uh, to, to to develop a, a better means of operating the business and develop better conclusions more quickly as to what to bring to market and why, and, and those sorts of things among a whole panoply of ways in which um, uh, in which data can be used to profoundly impact the enterprise. Speaking about advice, you know, both you and I speak about this need for the corporation, you know, obviously to open up in various ways. And we've talked about it on the client side and being open to your own people. But then you have this notion of ecosystem and ecosystem can mean many things, but certainly, you know, people have stretched it uh, and companies are stretching it to their client communities and building powerful communities around their products. So this is an extension of what we're talking about. But you speak about a topic that's you know near near to me, which is uh, connecting with VCs and and also with startups. So this whole getting input from outside parties that could inform your business, right? And in my book, uh, you know that's about understanding things about disruption that might prepare you for your next product, might even change your next product, or might give you a guide on where the future is headed, which, you know, none of us know where the future is headed, but we need to be ready. And like you said, we are not going to last necessarily 60 years on, on NASDAQ anymore. Certainly not if we're not in touch with innovators. Tell me a little bit about how you see the importance of a group, well, either startups or VCs, you know, VCs being kind of a, an intermediary to the market and they see things early, they listen in a very different way, I guess, than a traditional board member would, would do. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, and of course, this is an area you know so so well uh, from, from your the work that you do. Uh, so you're so pr- profoundly aware of this. What I would say is uh, competition today is less company to company and rather ecosystem to ecosystem. Uh, any company of a, of a certain size has a cadre of strategic and important partners that they go to market with whether it's members of their supply chain, whether it's um, other companies who, who together with, with uh, one's company are, are bringing products to market or services to market, you know, whether it's uh, people who are contractors and the, and the firms that are, that are providing those contractors to the firm, you know, just to name a few of many, many examples that one could. And so as a result of that, and an advantage of that, frankly, if managed well, is you have that many more res- uh, uh, sources of potential inspiration for innovation. And so what I suggest by way of ecosystem, for in my telling anyway, is that it's critically important for a technology executive to assemble his or her own ecosystem as well. And the way I describe that outside of the company, of course, there are ecosystems they ought to be developing of, of a kind inside the company as well. But outside the company, it begins with one's peers. Um, you know, the great thing about technology chiefs, technology and digital um, uh, leaders is those roles rhyme to a great degree, even if the companies and industries that they are represented are very different. And as a result of that, having a wonderful group of fellow chiefs, uh, heads of technology and digital, to whom any single one of them can turn becomes that much more important because this is a complex job at the end of the day. There are all kinds of issues that are arising in addition to opportunities. Again, the, getting back to the concept of nimble and then the need to parse those out and, and uh, stave off one and, and, and seize the other respectively. And so as a result of that, having a, a great group of, you know, of A-plus uh, fellow peers to whom to turn on a regular basis with issues that you're grappling with, opportunities you're grappling with, curiosities or hypotheses to test 
becomes a great way of to get to answers more quickly and to have more confidence in the answers you're choosing. The second layer to this is certainly the venture capital community, just as you say, a, a community that you represent uh, personally, Tron. And for me, the, the way that I, I, I think of it is this is the way to understand where smart money is being spent and why. Where is the future of technology going? Who are the companies that are going to be going to define that future? And what are the potential applications back to my company? And how do I get to know some of those entrepreneurs and maybe, frankly, have them shape their offering such that it's of the greatest value to me in those cases where that's appropriate? Maybe even invest in some of those very companies along the way as well. And so, again, having a, um, a degree of curation of those kinds of opportunities and those new technologies and those entrepreneurs with some trusted advisors in that community uh, who are themselves hungry for these kinds of relationships, because, of course, those Venture capitalists, for example, who have at least a portion of their portfolio dedicated to enterprise technology, well, the people that are buying that enterprise technology are those very same technology and digital chiefs. And so very symbiotic, the relationship between them. And the further one gets from an area like Silicon Valley, among other tech hubs, oftentimes it isn't recognized by the technology and digital chiefs just how symbiotic that is. So I certainly encourage uh, uh, those that I know best, and now through my book, hopefully a greater number of them, to de delve deeply into those those relationships and, and choose wisely, of course, in terms of who, who to, to turn to most often with questions related to that. Just to quickly round out the other two aspects of the ecosystem, executive recruiters, uh, who of course are you know sources of potential opportunity for your next job. But I would also say if you if you again uh, curate those relationships well, sources of inspiration as to where technology is going. What what are some of the org changes that are happening? What are the skills that are rising? What are the reasons why? Uh, technologists, my peers are failing since, of course, oftentimes they're brought in after the failure of a leader and, and that leader's replacement. And so those, among many other instances, are the kinds of insights one can more readily grapple with and, and grasp and, and, and take action upon as a result of the advice of some key leaders and advisors in the executive recruiting space. And then the last one, which I alluded to earlier, Tron, is the uh, our strategic partners in the technology landscape. You know, you, you hire them presumably because of their experience with companies like yours, if you're not tapping them for insight as a result uh, of, of what they know, uh, hopefully never sharing proprietary information, of course, because if they're doing that to you, then they're probably doing that, taking your information elsewhere as well. But at least hopefully anonymizing some of that and bringing the world of their experience to you. If you're not pushing them to gain those sorts of insights, well, then I would say that you're also getting half the value at, at, at most of what you should be in terms of those relationships that you're choosing. So collectively, that's that's uh, at least a good portion of the ecosystem, I would suggest that technology and digital leaders build and then like a garden, prune uh, and and fertilize and and take great care in making sure that you are continuing to to both both offer back to that ecosystem. This is, of course, not one way at all, but also in the process Peter, one of the gaining insights, real uh, interesting aspects of your book, time. I find, is that the last chapter is typically one of the first chapters historically in many leaders' mind. And I'm thinking of, of strategy, of course. And, you know, it's this elusive concept, I guess, which I'm curious to hear what your take really is on, on, on this topic. Curiously, when when you know when academics write about it, I think they all end up with you know not really being able to define it. And you know, famously, basically, it sort of crumbles and disappears when you start talking about what it is. But perhaps it's easier to talk about in terms of uh, tech strategy or you know within a domain. I don't know. 
But I'm reminded of, you know, over 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Leadership from Below. And one of the ideas there was sort of thinking about maybe strategy, the, you know, turning the, uh, the on its head, because, you know, some of the trends that we have been talking about here really is that you're going outside, you know, in order to gain the experience so that you actually can make up your strategy. It's not like you can sit there in the ivory tower and develop these super smart strategies in isolation without your ecosystem, without your clients, and in some cases, historically, right, even without your employees. So I, I was curious, why did you put it last in the book? And is there still a place for strategy given what we know, which is things move so much faster? So, you know, a five-year plan may not be as smart as, as it was 20 years ago. Yeah, that's a great, great questions. And I'll, I'll take it in the reverse order, if you don't mind. Uh, but I, but both very, very good questions. So I would say strategy certainly still matters. You make a great point in terms of the pace of change. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I even make this point in the book, there are those who might say because of the pace of change, because, you know, uh, two years, three years out, the things that will be our top priorities may be unnameable today, because the trends that will be driving them may not actually have emerged yet. And yet, in that short amount of time, they may may not only emerge but but blossom and then become that impactful on any one company or an industry. And so, being aware of those changes and uh, making sure that you're constantly monitoring the art of the possible and its evolution becomes that much more important. That said, it's still important to have a true north. Uh, where are you going, and why? And I would say it's important to have different lenses to that. To have plans that are shorter in duration, a year, or maybe even in some cases, thinking a uh, um, a little bit shorter term than that. Um, the, the, the future in that time frame, although still dynamic, um, is probably stable enough that it's worth putting to paper. Where do we hope, hope to go? What, what is this collection of activities that make up our product services, your body of work? What is it getting us so that you have everyone pushing in the same direction? And I would actually say in some ways, that's one of the main reasons why you want to have that happen in a large complex organization, absent strategy, People will unintentionally be working against each other if there's not a great plan in place. Uh, people may think that you know we should be going west when in fact we're supposed to be going east. And as a result of that, they're plotting, uh, you know, they're, they're using maps and plotting paths that are in opposite directions. And as a result, you're making minimal progress, uh, or, or perhaps worse as a result of that. And so I would say still have those plans in place. By the way, we'd also still have a narrative that is kind of where do we see the future two, three, four, five years out, recognizing that that's going to constantly be changing. But having the discipline within your organization to understand how macroeconomics, how politics, how my industry, dyna how the industry dynamics, how the startup community that's, that's impacting my industry as well, and a variety of other things will lead to the change in those assumptions. So charting a path, noting the assumptions and hypotheses behind it, constantly testing those. For those where the tests fail, making some modifications and changing and never be, you know, regretting uh, or, or being too sorry about saying, you know, we, we, we started a, a, on this part of the path that proved the, is not the right one. We're going to change our efforts there. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Uh, and then plotting along again and all the while communicating, making sure that the organization understands when those changes are happening and why. Let me get to your second question, uh, rather, excuse me, your first question, which was, why does it last? Uh, it's a great question. In, the, in many ways, the strategy ought to be, you, you think of it as first, if it's a startup, kind of who are we and where are we headed and you know, why are we in, the, in this industry and why have I hired you number two and those sorts of things. Um, 
But what I would say is, as I'm, I'm especially um, writing this book for large, you know, medium to large size organizations, going concerns that uh, certainly you still need to have a strategy, and it's kind of, in some ways, as you can appreciate as a as a many time author yourself, Trond, that books are the story of a book is in some ways told serially from from page one to page n, but uh, the 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 course at which the the different parts of of what's represented are going to be happening all at once in many ways as well. But but that that's not a cop out to say that that the strategy is, isn't still represented as last. It is because if you don't have great people doing their jobs right, if you've not modernized some of your processes, if you've not uh, furthermore modernized your technologies, if you've not built that ecosystem around that you don't have the necessary ingredients to have the best strategy. Now, it doesn't mean you know stop your strategy until the other four topics are optimized. Of course not. You know, still have your strategy you know, b- b- before plotting, using uh, points of reference like, like your great book, Future Tech or My Own. Um, you still need to have a plan in place and you know, you're, you're marshalling resources, human and financial, uh, in order to drive those things forward. Still do. But as you're maturing those other things, they're going to add color, wrinkles, and new sorts of opportunities that themselves will be uh, will breathe life into new aspects of the strategy itself. So I would say for strategy to truly be optimized, to be operating at, it, at its best, the other four areas uh, need to be optimized as well and, and brought to a level of maturity that will allow the organization to be uh, all that it can be from a strategy perspective. That's that's great to hear. Um, when I think about this podcast, Futurized, right, and uh, we have been talking about futurizing strategies that we both have through using the listening post of uh, the listening instrument of of the podcast to reach out to people and and get incoming from from people who who have messages that they want uh, to discuss. What are some of the other methods, or would you recommend everybody gets a podcast to to essentially equip you to see all these things that you have seen in your book? And you know, I'm advocating, you know, basically a, a set of ways of thinking about the world to simplify your life, put them in certain buckets so you can start structuring. You know, when you're looking for startups, you know, what are you looking for? Well, you're not just looking for the technology; you're looking to figure out where they fit in the regulatory landscape or other things. But what are, if, if you have some advice to people that maybe they are your target, so they, they, they are working in big organizations, certainly, you know, following your podcast, they will listen to their peers. They will hear you asking difficult questions and they can read your book, Getting to Nimble. So partly your answer surely is that the, this nimbleness, you know, is as, at the heart Oh, getting ready for the future. But beyond that, wh- what are some sources of information? Are there, is books really a sufficient source these days? Or are these sort of random conversations, listening to other people's podcasts? It doesn't strike me that, you know, going to four-year college or getting a two-year MBA, these are kind of old-fashioned ways of going about learning. But what are the best new ways of learning? 
Yeah, well, I, yeah, it's it's a, it's a great question, Trond, and I, I would say, um, you know, I say this to my my uh, my kids all the time. I have a 15 year old and a 13 year old that the common denominator among successful people, no matter the field, is that they are readers, that they are people who are constantly striving to learn. Um, and I, I think by extension, now reading can include so many different uh, media types. Of course, reading now can be done with your ears uh, as you listen to audiobooks, for example. Uh, podcasts are, in fact, another another great way to, or video form, all kinds of different ways. Um, you think of the number of massive open online courses that are available, the MOOCs uh, from Coursera to Udacity to edX to LinkedIn Learning, et cetera. These are all great sources. And I might add, so many of these are relatively cheap uh, in terms of uh, your ability to take advantage of them, especially at a, on a, on a lar- even a larger scale in, in an organization. So de- developing that kind of learner's mentality of constantly striving to learn new skills for the future becomes that much more important. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, there, there's a great documentary on right now about Bill Gates and Netflix um, that Netflix has done about Bill Gates. And it talks about how he does these retreats to some home a couple of hours uh, away from his house in Seattle. So it's still in Washington State, I believe. And he brings, brings a big bag of books with him. And uh, he has minimal distractions and he's there alone just with his thoughts and with the ideas that he's pouring over in those books. You know, and it strikes me, especially during the time of quarantine, Tron, where so many of us are going from Zoom call to Zoom call to Zoom call and not necessarily making the space necessary to synthesize what we are learning and to simply just think that it means finding more of those opportunities. I I was on a call just a few days ago with an executive who indicated that for him and for his team, he's established Friday as no meeting Friday. And they, they clear the calendar and it's just an opportunity to... To, to, to synthesize in various ways in which that might happen. It may be building that presentation for the board. It may be, you know, thinking about that new product. It may be taking that idea that, that you just thought about in the shower a couple of days ago and starting to develop the skeleton of it uh, uh, and see whether or not it's worthy of further investigation and bringing to your boss. And so I think we need to find, we need to um, provide a mechanism for our teams to create that space for those, uh, that creative thinking to be done. And so, you know, as I said, as I say to my, my kids, you, you need to be, uh, you need to be a reader. You need to be a learner in the various forms that that might take, uh, because that's how you constantly refresh. And frankly, I think it's one of the ways that it's the spice of life in many ways as well is finding those new insights and inspirations that might impact the, the, the path that you are on personally and professionally as well. So in some ways it's kind of taking that ecosystem concept of having a lot of good friends and tapping into the knowledge of those good friends while also providing yours back to that ecosystem and extending it then to the the broader body of knowledge that's available through so many media sources, again, from books to podcasts to video to to you fill in the blank with the various uh, aspects of the media landscape that might apply. I I try to practice this. And luckily for me, during uh, during quarantine, I've been able to reflect quite a bit and have had more than one day a week to 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 write and reflect and but it, what strikes me uh, peter is almost i think we've had it all wrong right in terms of what working hard and productive really means it's not to get the most things done it's more the empty spaces in between where we can take the time to actually make the connections that we wouldn't otherwise have, have made whether it is you know in our business or in our life or you know to make these cognitive leaps as it were where we're where we're actually innovating 
right? Because, you know, what does being creative really mean? It certainly is not directly related to being efficient. It's actually something quite the opposite, almost. So Bill Gates may be an extreme case. Not all of us, you know, would, would have a fantastic weekend if we were pouring over 20 books. That would be paradise for me, but I can imagine many executives finding that slightly boring, but it could mean different things, obviously. So um, as, as we're rounding off, I wanted to ask you sort of just one last question. If you're looking into the future in, in, in your field, right? So enterprise IT and, or the future of enterprise, as, uh, as it were, where, where are we heading and how do, does one best innovate fast as a large company? Are there uh, you know, is, is there going to be a template for this or is it just going to be the answer of your book, which is don't plan too hard because you have to be nimble? Yeah, well, so I think that nimbleness uh, is going to be important to, to get the, the most um, opportunities, the more turns to the plate. You know, if you think about a company like Amazon, for example, and it's, of course, uh, easy to point to the, the world beating companies as the models. But but uh, hear me out here. What what is special about Amazon is uh, not only is it just this remarkable idea factory and an incredibly creative culture and and uh, you know naturally a, a company now that has become a leader both in B two C as well as B two B in a really remarkable way. But they just they they have more trips to the plate. Forgive a, a baseball analogy. They have more shots on goal uh, than than anyone else, one might argue. Uh, and we don't necessarily remember the failures. Do, do you have an Amazon phone? I, I don't. Uh, I never did. And not enough people did for that to be a successful product. But you know, Bezos talks about the things they learned from that failure. In fact, products that drew from some of the innovations of it that themselves became uh, important ingredients for innovations that succeeded. And so a lot of this is just having that that maker's kind of perspective and making it okay for people to try things and to fail, but to learn from them each time and put some of those learnings very definitively into something else. There's been an emergence, as I'm sure you've seen as well, Trond, of innovation labs at a lot of big companies. And, and to be perfectly candid, those have been a mixed bag in terms of their rate of success. Many times it's just sort of a, peer, a, a series of prototypes that no, don't really you know, move the needle for a multi-billion dollar organization in developing the next billion dollar or multi-billion dollar product or service. And so there, that translation from a series of great ideas to scaling up a certain set of them to do something that's really meaningful, that's a different kind of set of muscles and, and frankly, in many cases, a different uh, you know, team uh, makeup that's necessary in order to bring that to life. But I think there's something there. There's something that's required to, in helping the organization develop that, that innovator's mentality. And, you know, I think of the way that uh, Andy Grove used to think about, uh, used to convey things at, at Intel, that Intel's biggest competitor is Intel. <laughs> and, and we need to be the one cannibalizing our own uh, products and coming up with the technology of the future, not waiting for a competitor to do so. We, we, each of us, I think, need to be thinking in that same sort of way within our own organizations. What are the things that were maybe the, the things we were most proud of? I tell the story of Rob Carter in the book of FedEx, um, who, you know, having spent time also with Fred Smith, the CEO of the company and founder of the company, says there's not a de strategic decision in the company that doesn't go through our CIO, Rob Carter. And um, that, you know, he, he's, he, Rob, recognized that the crown jewels of the organization is technology, 
were, uh, which he, he rightfully was very proud of, uh, were going to be the source of the company's downfall if he didn't modernize them and then went about doing that. And so thinking about what is the future of, of this thing that, that that's going to replace the thing that we were once most proud of is a really interesting uh, existential question that requires a lot of humility if, in fact, it was you who helped at least come up with it in the first place. And so we need to have leaders. We need to, we, we as leaders need to foster teams to think differently in order to bring about that kind of profound change. Because as I say, uh, change is the only constant that we can be uh, very confident uh, that, that's, that, 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 that will continue to come. And whether we ready for, are ready for it or not, well, There's thanks no very much, down. Peter. This is uh, fascinating. I think you have certainly done your part with uh, your plethora of books and uh, podcast episodes to to make a dent here. And uh, I shall be listening to some of those 540-odd episodes again and again and learn learn more. So thank you so much also for sharing uh, your, your views here on, on, on my show. Well, uh, Tron, it's a, it's a pleasure for me to take time on, on your great podcast as well. I wish you all the best with it and with your book as well. Um, I, I'm sure that e each will continue to make uh, dents in, in, in this space also. You have just listened to episode 91 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunone Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was two author podcasters discuss tech. In this conversation, we talked about how Peter High came to host the Technovation podcast back in 2008 and get into enterprise IT. We also talked about how Tron Nindham came to host the Futurize podcast in 2020. We discussed a new book by Peter High, Getting to Nimble. And we discussed a new book by Tron Nindham, Future Tech. Peter shared the secrets of podcasting. My takeaway is that there is significant value in having frameworks to guide our thinking on change in organizations, business, and society in the digital era. Where Peter focuses on the transformation of people, practices, processes, technologies, ecosystems, and strategies in his book, Getting to Nimble, I focus on five components, tech, regulation, business models, social dynamics, and the environment, in my book, Future Tech, and indeed in this podcast, Futurized. As Peter and I discovered, there is significant overlap in our perspectives, but we also come from very different places. Peter's audience is CIOs. My audience is broader, which makes him the smarter one in terms of targeting. I'm not sure who of us gets to have more fun, but I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Peter. One should be very fortunate to work with him, I think. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 49 on Living the Future of Work, episode 41, The Future of Work, or episode 41, The Future of Industrial Operations. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.